it in New Zealand. You see what's going on in New Zealand. They beat it. They beat it. It was like front page. They beat it because they wanted to show me something. The problem is big surge in New Zealand. So, you know, it's, uh, it's terrible. We don't want that. Now, it was hardly a surprise that when Donald Trump said that last week and more about New Zealand, it ended up in our headlines. And at that time, CNN put Donald's drivel in context by running the numbers like this. New Zealand has reported about 1,300 cases since the pandemic began. The US is approaching 5.5 million. After that, some idiot offshore called New Zealand a COVID hellhole, which prompted a flurry of sarcastic tweets here, hashtag NZ hellhole, including some from our journalists. And the AM show found that all pretty funny last Monday. <laughs> and this from Jacqueline. Now, she put up a photo of her son surfing, and she writes, my son was trying to escape detection by hiding inside a wave yesterday. It's extreme lengths that you have to go to in New Zealand hellhole. There's been some some great ones, actually, and if you do have some time and you need a bit of a laugh, because Lord knows we, we need it right now, uh, have, a, have a look. Search up NZ Hellhole. Now, the idea was to show people offshore that everything here was car pie, comparatively speaking, though those locked down in Auckland in an overcrowded house with worries over jobs and money probably weren't among those joining in the online fun. But none of that, though, was likely to influence big-time tweeter Donald Trump, who had, of course, only singled out New Zealand in the first place for his own electioneering purposes. And online misinformation certainly played a part in his election win back in 2016, with a little help from Russia. Now, last weekend, Stuff's election podcast, Tick Tick, took a look at possible offshore influences on our election, noting that the GCSB and the SIS had both said in recent months this was something to keep an eye on. And University of Otago International Relations Professor Robert Patman told Tick Tick New Zealand could well be a tempting target for international interference. A tempting target? That does not sound good. What should we be on guard for? I think we should be on guard against the interference or intrusion into our election of foreign actors through their involvement in the social media and their involvement with, you know, domestic actors here. I, I don't think there's any need for domestic actors to get the help of overseas players to help in our election. Now, by domestic actors, Professor Patman wasn't talking about Shortland Street, but real players in our politics, and some of those have already made news by hooking up with foreign influences. Let June the 23rd go down in our history as our Independence Day. Banks' millions helped get Brexit across the line, funding a divisive grassroots campaign, tapping into Britain's fears of terrorism, uncontrolled immigration and rumours of Turkey joining the EU. The NHS bus wasn't theirs, but this one was. Nigel Farage, their frontman, but the true conductors were Banksy and Wiggy, their nicknames, pulling the strings and writing the checks behind the scenes. That was News Hub's Lloyd Burr recently talking about the self-described bad boys of Brexit in the UK, British multi-millionaires Andy Wigmore and Aaron Banks, who told Lloyd Burr that they wanted to give us Winston on steroids in the election campaign and that the New Zealand First Party was keen for their help. You haven't given any money to, Win to Winston Peters or New Zealand First. He is actually hiring you. Yes. Is he paying you to come and yeah. there's help? A there's a contract between us uh, that's uh, no doubt with the electoral commission or whatever or Gus body will be released in due course. Last month, Professor Patman told the Otago Daily Times that arrangement was simultaneously amusing and ominous, but he didn't find it funny on Stuff's podcast Tick Tick last weekend. 
They stand for a view of the world which is antithesis of what New Zealand stands for. They do not believe in a rules-based system. They are very strong supporters of the Trump administration. Banks and Wigmore, if you go to their social media, describe Black Lives Matter as the Taliban. They're extreme right. And they have been involved in electoral skullduggery. Now, it's interesting that the foreign minister of New Zealand, when our national interest critically depends on an international rules-based system, is hiring people that do not believe in that rules-based system and actively attack its institutions like the UN and the WTO. The World Trade Organization has been a godsend for our trading leverage in the world. And so that's what the problem is. And on the Tick Tick podcast last weekend, Stuff's Eugene Bingham and Adam Dudding concluded that foreign interference in our political debate was probably not what we thought it might be. Foreign influence in elections isn't all about Putin and stolen emails and WikiLeaks and those kind of things. There are other versions of it too, some of which might not even amount to much. Fake accounts run by foreign white supremacists. New Zealand newspapers, which come back from the grave to talk about Pakistan. Social media swarms by American gun owners and Canadian right-wingers. And shiny-shoed consultants who fly in to offer their services to mainstream political parties. But the media play a role in this too. As an example, men of means in the UK are also now backing another cause which involves us, the idea of a post-Brexit alliance linking the UK with former colonies Australia, Canada and New Zealand, or Kanzuk for short. Now, this has barely been discussed as an issue here, but it has in the media overseas. Earlier this month, for example, the Wall Street Journal and Rupert Murdoch's paper The Australian both published a long piece by the conservative British historian Andrew Roberts who said this. A second Anglospheric superpower would mean that the political values we share will be better defended and promoted, and a flourishing Kanzuk would be a fine neighbour and trading and defence partner for the US. And prominent think tanks such as the Adam Smith Institute and the Henry Jackson Society have also backed up this Kanzuk idea. While politicians and political parties are well known to the public, the institutions and think tanks which push forward ideas like this in the media these days are not. And that's the subject of Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics, a new book by the news editor of the UK-based online news service Open Democracy. Peter Gagan. In this election campaign, we've had a lot of talk about dirty politics, again, but not about the influence of think tanks and so-called dark money. So I asked Peter Gagan, do our news media here need to be wary? What you see in Britain, at least, like so social media can play a really big role in, in what I would what I call I would call astroturf campaigns. So kind of like really fake campaigns that just appear. So, for example, one, recently we had this campaign to defund the BBC, which appeared on social media on Twitter. Um, and the idea was claimed this guy was saying, it's a young man, a student, a 19 year old saying, like, I set this campaign up in my bedroom. And within 24 hours, it had 70,000 followers and it was on the sun and it was in other broadcast uh, outlets. You can use social media. You can kind of create kind of astroturf groups on social media and then they can feed into traditional media because journalists now will see, oh, does this thing on on Twitter? Some people are chatting about this thing. So you could feed into traditional media like that. But I don't think for a lot of these groups, social media itself is enough. And especially for people like funders, you know, if you think about a lot of these groups are they don't require huge amounts of money in British politics. If you gave a think tank, you know, £100,000, they'll write a few reports for you. Like, it's not huge sums in, the gra- in British politics, but a lot of these kind of funders want to see their message not just on social media, they also want to see it on traditional broadcast media. 
What we have seen on social media, though, around political campaigns themselves, and not just think tanks, but like kind of third party, is a rise of kind of third party campaigning in Britain, in which people are putting adverts on social media, buying Facebook adverts in particular, from campaigns that really have no, it's impossible to know who they are and don't have to declare their donors. So what's interesting about that is that social media can play a role in terms of putting out some messages, but traditional media is also important for amplifying them. Recently, these, uh, I guess it's a post-Brexit thing, but these efforts to revive what's being called the Anglosphere, this kind of uh, British Empire redux 2.0 or something like that, it hasn't been much covered in the media here. I see this is a thing in the UK and overseas. Is this got some sort of lobbying push behind it? Oh, yes, it's very. The Kanzak ideas emerged in the last kind of five, ten years as part of almost the Brexit process. So, if you think about Brexit, this idea of re-engaging with the Commonwealth, but particularly with English-speaking countries that were part, once part of the British Empire, for some on the right of British politics, has become really important to so people like Andrew Roberts. So, this idea—it's quite fascinating how it's very—it's very many of the same people who are involved in these right-wing think tanks I'm talking about who've pushed this idea of Kanzak too. So there was actually was a Kanzak International set up and one of the, uh, as a company and one of the main pe- people talking about Kanzak in Britain is a guy called Andrew Lillico, who used to work at the Institute of Economic Affairs for many years. And so it's the same kind of individuals pushing these kind of ideas. But the media is actually really important with this because there's a, a lot of these kind of commentators, even though they're quite fringe and the idea doesn't have much traction, it's not really ever been talked about that much within or everyday discussions in Britain. You know, you wouldn't go out onto the street here in Glasgow and talk to somebody about Kanzak that wouldn't know what you were talking about. But in the pages of newspapers and amongst the kind of people who consume the policy papers of right-wing think tanks, it has been an idea. It's the kind of thing that's kind of been floating around the background. Interestingly, no one ever really asks how interested the other potential members of Kanzak are in this. So it's it's kind of, I'm, I'm curious to find out what, it, what the, the take in New Zealand is on it. We only notice it when it, it flares up. When, oh, look, look what the Wall Street Journal has published. Oh, look at this in the Australian. So that's where I guess the media cut through uh, really does work. But on the same theme, two pieces heavily critical of New Zealand's COVID management and our Prime Minister. One in The Spectator, you know, in print since 1828, but also this online outlet spiked. Originally the magazine of the British Revolutionary Communist Party, now an online outlet funded by the Charles Koch Foundation, <laughs> among others, uh, seems an extraordinary transition. Is this an example of, you know, dark money at play? What you're talking about here is, yes, a group called the Revolutionary Communist Party in the kind of 80s onwards in Britain, very much, you know, kind of a fringe group in British politics, pro Slobodan Milosevic, pro, pro the Bosnian Serbs, pro Saddam Hussein, you know, not a kind of, you know, not exactly a mainstream outfit. But over the last 20 years, they kind of morphed into this organization spiked, which is kind of like professional contrarianism, basically. They're kind of in favor of smoking in pubs, against skeptical of climate change, pro-business, a very strange kind of mix of uh, mix of issues. Again, like the think tanks, they've taken advantage, I think, of the kind of boom in 24-7 news, the need for controversial personalities on radio and television. So a lot of spiked contributors who are members of the Revolutionary Communist Party have now become uh, kind of ubiquitous on British television, pro and very involved with Brexit, very pro-Brexit. And quite remarkably, in recent weeks, one of the most famous kind of faces in spiked, a woman called Claire Fox, has been elevated to the House of Lords by Boris Johnson. 
So she, uh, the Conservatives have now elevated somebody who was in favour of the bomb that almost killed Margaret Thatcher in Brighton in 1984, it was laid by the IRA, into the House of Lords as a legislator. And they screen, they, again, it's small, small amounts of money from we don't know where. They've had funding from the Koch brothers, we do know that, are able to kind of push and change the political conversation in Britain in ways that I find is, is really striking. And it's interesting to see you're seeing some of that happen you're seeing some of that blow back into New Zealand. But really, the kind of thing you're talking about compared to the daily diet that we get of this here in Britain is, I'm sorry to tell you, really small beer. This is a, these are the kind of columns and think thoughts that we've had here for, you know, for, for years, really, almost for decades. And even when it came to COVID, while most of the British media was kind of realised this was a big deal and was very important, the Spectator, the Telegraph newspaper, and spiked have all been really kind of pushing the kind of, well, this isn't as big a deal. We should follow Sweden. The Swedish model was a big thing for a few months here. And it just shows, I think, how a very small number of very purposeful people and very purposeful groups are able to really change a political conversation massively with a little bit of money, a little bit of dark money and a lot of influence and a lot of knowledge about how the system works. It's striking how these actors are able to kind of really get huge political culture. And that's kind of the overarching point of my book in many ways, that a mix of the digital age and money and lobbying has allowed these kind of fringe groups to take over a lot of political conversation in ways it's really hard for us on the outside to understand. And so with that in mind, Peter, I mean, what do you think mainstream media outlets should do to counter or acknowledge or even, you know, kind of confront politically funded think tanks and lobbying well, here in Britain, there's a few things you could do. I think the first thing you could do is like not have people on political programmes unless they say where their, their funders actually come from. I work for a journalism non-profit called Open Democracy. All of my funders, which is a mix of kind of large philanthropic organisations and individuals, are on our website. There's no reason why the same kind of rules couldn't apply to think tanks. Yes, yeah, so in a, in a sense of open democracy, in part funded by the Open Society Foundation, um, George Soros in the background, and of course... His name is a lightning rod for um, all sorts of people, isn't it? So, I mean, same deal. You have funding from other sources. The difference is you say you've got to declare it and be open about it. Yeah, and there's also, I think, there's also another difference as well in that, you know, George Soros runs the Open Society as a kind of, as, as an arm's length body with lots of people, staff in between it. You know, the idea that George Soros decides what media organisations, you know, given the amount of money the man gives out, that wouldn't be possible. I think it's very different, say, which is what happens in Britain if ExxonMobil gives money to a think tank. You know, and I think there's, there's also the qualitative difference of the corporate role in politics. And I think it's important not to lose sight of that. So I think transparency is part of it. But also, you know, if you, if you had a message coming, and I think this is, if you had a message coming from an organisation that had a, had a financial stake in, it, in the thing that was being proposed, but was been hidden, I think that's the thing that if a corporate body is, is financing something, most people will go, well, what's in their interest? And if that's been hidden, well, then they don't even know that that's, there's something going on, that there's a potential conflict of interest. So that would be a first point I would make. I would say, look, it's really important to, that you don't, we don't have people on the media who don't, we don't know where their money comes from. We don't know whose interest they're representing when they're speaking, especially if they have a track record of pushing things that certain interests want them to push based on what they're funded. I think there's a wider thing, too, about how we treat debate. Like, do we treat debate as getting two extreme positions and that being the way we discuss something? And that's been the way it's gone in Britain for a very long time. So, if we, you know, late night um, political talk shows on radio and television, debate has been 
two sh- often shrill positions from the diametrically opposite sides of the political spectrum. In that world, this kind of influence works really well. If you get people who are you know, willing to kind of almost argue any position as these people from Spike there, you will never struggle uh, for media gigs. You will never struggle for exposure and you will never struggle to get your message out there. And I think there's, a, there's almost an onus, I think, on journalists to kind of try and pull away from that and try and have some more in-depth discussions that don't get down to that kind of shrill, um, like kind of a lot. Of, uh, we need basically to, to look for more light and less heat, I think, at least in Britain, in the way we talk as journalists and the kind of debates and discussions that we set up around topics. Slowly, maybe that's starting to happen in some places, but it's been very belated. And I think the Brexit referendum was almost the apogee of that, where you ended up with kind of content-free debates and discussions that just played into whatever it was that different groups wanted to play into. I'm from Ireland, which is similar size to New Zealand. We don't have the same kind of issues that Britain has with all of this. And partly, I I imagine, it's because it's a much smaller market. There there isn't as much need to try and influence the political situation for various reasons. Do do you you have quite sort of sharp, small lobbying firms and individuals who... um, will be for hire to be the voice, you know, maybe not an entire institution with a research unit and a grand-sounding uh, name. We have them, for example, here in New Zealand, former political staffers um, who get out of that and form their own uh, lobbying and consultancies and, and will represent industries that hire them for, you know, specific purposes. Do you have that in Ireland as well? And are they quite plugged we, into the we, media? Yeah, we have some of it, but that's, it's, that's probably much more of a, of a British... It's, it's probably... It is definitely much more prevalent in Britain the kind of overlap between politics and into uh, into kind of lobbying is really strong. We've got, in Britain, there's very weak lobbying laws, but also there's a huge culture of second jobbing for MPs. So even just this week in Britain, the former chancellor, who only stepped down earlier this year, Sajid Javid, uh, was given, went back to work for J.P. Morgan Chase as an advisor, a bank he used to work for before. And that revolving door it's part of Irish politics, but it's a very, very big part of British politics. So what you end up then is often you will find former MPs crop up again as lobbyists and are really incredibly well placed, unsurprisingly, to lobby their former colleagues in government for things like public contracts and to un- to kind of to get into the political process. And we've really seen that in Britain with the COVID contracting, with the contracts that have been given out around the pandemic. There's been updating stories of politically connected companies, often with not any, with a very small kind of footprint or history in, in the issue that they're supposed to be dealing with, whether it's comms or uh, public um, personal protective equipment, getting large government contracts. So it's, it's quite clear that there is this revolving door from politics into lobbying and industry and back in again. We have this uh, surprise story popping up here while our election campaign was just getting underway that the New Zealand First Party, part of our governing coalition, uh, has formed some sort of relationship with the so-called bad boys of Brexit, Aaron Banks, Andy Wigmore. Um, Should we be taking this seriously? Do they just like the sound of their own voices or is this the kind of thing they like to do, actually target smaller political organisations do you think they really would be interested in influencing the outcome of an, an election here? Well, if you look at the history of Aaron Banks in Britain, he's been quite good at working with small political organisations to change the weather, the political weather here in huge ways. When the Brexit referendum was called, he became probably the biggest single donor to a political campaign in British election history. So this was a guy who had an insurance business, was not known in politics at all, 
not particularly it's not particularly clear how much money he had or what he had the amount of money he claimed to have but lo and behold he was donating millions and millions of pounds to the political campaign and it was his own campaign it was called leave.eu and what leave.eu did during the brexit referendum was it really pushed a very hard line on immigration and race and was kind of during the campaign it tapped into voters fears and concerns about kind of the country around them shall we say but what leave.eu did was really, with Nigel Farage, put the issue of immigration front and centre and almost make the Brexit referendum a referendum on immigration. I spent a lot of time researching about Aaron Banks for my book. He told Parliament that his campaign, his political campaign, Leave.eu, was totally separate from his businesses, from his insurance businesses. But actually, I met loads of his staff and were able to show that actually his insurance business was, was effectively running the political campaign and he was using the business to target voters and to run run this kind of Leave.eu campaign. So He's the, the kind of guy... So if they really wanted to mess what? around with New Zealand politics, though, why would they be appearing on our TV screens, you know, giving uh, interviews to one of our major TV channels here, um, you know, saying we, we're trying to create mayhem? Wouldn't you be, if they were serious about it, wouldn't they be doing this? in the background, such as the financing is done, without anyone really knowing where, what's happening? Well, he has a track record of getting involved in other, in other political uh, arenas. Um, I did some work showing that he'd actually he'd been involved in Lesotho politics, would you believe? Back before the Brexit referendum, Aaron Banks had been travelling to Lesotho, and he'd said that he was advising the local political party, but actually it turned out he was giving large sums of money to the local political party. It would be interesting to know what role Aaron Banks is playing in New Zealand politics, but here in Britain, he's definitely played a role in terms of changing the politics of Britain. His Leave.eu campaign you know, was very successful. Britain voted to leave the European Union. But also subsequently, I think he played a really big role in pushing the Conservative Party further to the right. Leave.eu has more than a million followers on Facebook. It's a huge social media presence. He was encouraging them to join the Conservative Party, what he called a blue wave to kind of take over Conservative politics. And that, in many ways, probably has been successful. It's probably the world in which we're living in now. It's not quite Aaron Banks's world, but he's definitely helped to shape it. And while all this is, uh, I guess contemporary and related to digital technology and new platforms like Facebook and so on. I mean, you referenced the uh, Institute of Economic Affairs, um, perhaps uh, one of the original think tanks, if I might call it that. But that goes all the way back to, I think, the what, the 1950s or maybe early 60s, a long, long time. Um, influential with Margaret Thatcher and promoting you know, the uh, economic ideas of Hayek and so on. Um, and also here, you know, we had Rogenomics was our version of, of Thatcherism, you know, in the, in the 1980s. Economics, which changed um, New Zealand society f- forever. Was some of that really attributable to, you know, the IEA being set up, you know, 25, 30 years before? Milton Friedman, the kind of one of the fathers of neoliberal economics, said of the IEA, if it hadn't been for the IEA, there wouldn't have been Margaret Thatcher. And it's quite, it's not difficult to trace the ideas that came out from think tanks like the IEA. Thatcher, Reagan, monetarism, these were all products of this Hayekian, this kind of Austrian school of economics way of seeing the world. What's interesting now is these groups now have continued on. And in many ways, they they kind of are less pushing some particular, you know, they still are very much in favor of the free market. They still have kind of these kind of free market shibboleths for sure. But increasingly as well, they're more effective as, as lobbyists for specific corporate interests, I would argue. So less and less are the IEAs this world coming up with some monetarist blueprint for the future. And more and more, they're pushing specific policies, whether that's 
Brexit, whether that's abolishing public health England, that seems to be increasingly the role of, of these kind of think tanks, and which is, I think is one of the reasons why corporate interests are very keen to fund them, because if you have a specific niche interest, these guys are exactly the kind of people who can put it on the political agenda. That was Peter Gagan, news editor of the UK-based online news service Open Democracy and the author of the new book Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics.